I think sometimes we, we, we forget that free speech isn't just about the rights of the speaker, but it's also about the rights of the compelled listener. Um, and, you know, the Supreme Court has debated this multiple times, right, that, that, that you can't just say whatever you want um, because there's actually the, the listeners actually have rights, too. Um, and, and, and you have to balance those rights. And I think sometimes we forget the rights of the listener. And in, in, in terms of the climbing, I think we've um, sometimes focused just on the rights of the first suspensionists and not those hundreds of people who come after them to climb the route that they put up. You're listening to Relish This, the Purpose Marketing Podcast. Here's your host, Stu Swineford. Hey, everybody. Stu here. My guest today is Mitsu Awasaki, and he is the CEO of the American Alpine Club. And this is an organization that has stood the test of time. They've been around for over 100 years. And he and I had a really fun conversation. We share a lot of common interests in that we're both outdoor people, um, climbers, etc. But um, one of the things that we talked about was diversity and inclusion in the climbing community and how the American Alpine Club is trying to tackle this problem. And I think that it's a really great episode for any nonprofit leader to be listening to just because, you know, they are, are hitting this head on. And I know that this is something that everyone is thinking about right now. So I encourage you to listen to the show, have a, have a great time. I know I did with Mitsu and uh, here we go. Mitsu, how, how are you doing today? Oh, I'm doing really well. Thank you, Stu. Well, I'm really happy to have you on the show. I've been a big fan of the American Alpine Club for for many years and all the all the good work that you guys are doing and I I must admit I've been remiss at at getting a membership, but I was just checking out some of the some of the fantastic benefits that come with membership, not only just supporting um, you know, climbers and and alpinists and and that whole community, but um but there's some some fantastic uh membership benefits. So for all those people out there who like climbing mountains, I'd recommend going and checking out uh AmericanAlpineClub.org. Oh fantastic. Thank you, Stu. And uh, yeah, I, I, I'm excited to have you. Um, is it back as a member or first time member? Um, I'm you know, sure I I may have been a member back when I climbed a ton back in the '90s, um, but it's been a few. It's been a little while since I've since I've been a uh, as aggressive about right. about getting out on the rock on, on a regular basis. Right. Well, I think this is a really actually great time to talk about membership. Um, because we we just rolled out a new membership model just uh, just two months ago in March, um, and maybe I'm getting a, a little bit ahead of myself here, but there's a new level in our membership for those who don't necessarily climb outdoors, um, which we're calling the supporter level. So those are for the folks who um, you know, want to support the what we call the good works of the organization, mm-hmm. you know, the community building, the policy advocacy, um, education, and the library and archives. Um, versus what used to be, you know, our membership um, almost required you to, to be a full member that um, included the rescue insurance. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there's a, a, a new membership level that doesn't require you to be a, um, a full member with a rescue benefit, but rather a person who supports the good works. Um, and, you know, it's, it's also just part of recognizing that not all climbers are climbing 
you know, big mountains across the Rockies or the Northwest or all across the globe. Um, if you're a gym climber or a, a boulder, you, you know, you don't need a helicopter rescue, um, but you might still want to, um, you know, support that uh, kind of the advocacy work that we do. Yeah. And the library there in Golden is great too. Oh, it's fantastic. Have you been here? I have. It's been a while, but, but I've, I've been to the library before. It's just, it's, it's just really neat to have that as a resource here in the in the area. I'm, I feel very privileged that I I live close by. Mm-hmm. It's been it's been it's been closed uh, during COVID, mm-hmm. um, but we are looking forward to reopening it now the vaccines are coming out. Um, and for uh, those listeners that that don't know about our library, we have about 180,000 volumes of um, climbing specific books. Um, Everything from historical books to personal journals to guidebooks that help you still get out there today. Yeah, it's really cool that you and your organization have so many ways to participate. So you can donate, you can become a member, you can you know visit the library as a resource. But there's there's just a, a whole host of ways to get involved that actually do help support the the movement and the, and the, all the great work that you guys do. How, how did you guys evolve that? I know that you haven't, haven't been CEO for a super long time. Cause we actually met in Portland a few years ago when you were with, um, the association for, uh, experiential education, but, um, can you give us a little bit of history in, in terms of how your, your model evolved? Oh, absolutely. So we are, Oh, at this point, we're just over 100 years um, old, um, and we've been serving the climbing community through, I would say, inspiration, right? I think, you know, I think of us as an organization that inspires or helps climbers dream of, of big goals or big dreams, um, and then we help to to resource and support those those dreams so that we can actualize it. Um, you know, I think we're in the business of, of pulling us further towards the edge of what's possible in climbing and both yeah, both in climbing um, and maybe human capacity. Right. Um, and with that said, we were a small organization that was founded in, in, in New York of all places um, and moved out to Colorado um, back in the back in the eighties. Um, and even then we were relatively small and I would say relatively exclusive. Um, at that point you, you needed um a climbing resume and two references to get in. Um, and I, I joined in the early 90s and remember mm-hmm. sending my climbing resume and hoping that I was, you know, I'm putting this in quotes, air quotes, cool enough to be a member of the American right. Club. Um, we've done away with that. Uh, we did away with that a long time ago um, and wanted to become uh, an organization that um, welcomes everyone. So through the, the um, 90s and into you know, just just last year, um, we grew our membership through what I would call a very transactional relationship. Um, and the drivers of, of the membership was the rescue benefit, um, the publications, and the gear discounts, um, along with the fact that you were a part of this very exclusive, um, very inspirational organization. But, but we know through surveys that rescue benefits, publications, and gear discounts were the, the primary drivers. So we went from a few thousand members to 25,000 members across the country. Whoa. Yeah. So so we have a, a large presence uh, and we have some gravitas within the outdoor industry at this point. Yeah. So as I 
as I've transitioned in, and as you said, yeah, I'm brand new here. I started last August. Um, the board and I and the, the leadership team have had a conversation about, well, what can we do with this um, large membership base? Um, and, and how might we transition from a transactional relationship to a values-based relationship? Because we have the, um, uh, the financial capacity, the membership base, and the gravitas within the, in the industry to do something more. Um, and so as part of the transactional relationship, I'd say that we didn't have strong opinions um, uh, because we were driving it through the transaction. Um, today, we want to be a more values-based organization and maintain those transactions, but values-based to, to, to continue to drive membership, but also mm -hmm. to um, have a vision about what climbing, I'm going to say, culture could look like in the future. Right. Um, yeah, and that's really exciting for, for me and for the board and for our entire team. Um, so, you know, back to your question about what do we do, I, I, I'd say that, you know, we could probably bucket those in a few few buckets, maybe more than I can count on my fingers right away. Um, but uh, community building, um, policy and advocacy, education, and, you know, uh, historians of historians as library and archives. Right. Part, yeah. Yeah. So as part of our community building, um, you know, these buckets have always been here, but I would say that in the past, we've, we have done a great job of reflecting what climbing community looks like and continuing to inspire. But, but we, we, we want to actually envision a future um, and we want to actually lean into some really difficult conversations that need to happen within climbing. Right. So, you know, climbing, as, as you know, um, we have some real challenges around mental health. There's a lot mm -hmm. of eating disorders. There's a lot of grief from trauma and loss. Um, we have, you know, a fair bit of misogyny out there. Um, and I, I don't think that's exclusive to climbing, but there just is, and we need to, mm -hmm. to address it. Um, and there's some issues around inclusion and equity. And, um, you know, we're going to lean into these conversations, and I think they're going to be difficult. I, I know that we're going to be difficult because we're already in one of these conversations. Right. Um, but we want this to be a really healthy, inclusive um, community. And I think we've got a place to be that uh, organization that helps to, to amplify the work that's already being done, right. um, but amplify it and bring it onto the national stage. Yeah. There's, there's so much really good, but difficult work going on in the, in the diversity and equity space right now, mm -hmm. um, you know, diversity, equity and, and inclusion. And, and I know that the climbing has historically had a little bit of a, a challenge in that space, um, you mm -hmm. know, tends to be, uh, you know, very, very uniform in terms of race. And, and, yeah. um, and so it's, it's a, you know, a little bit of an uphill battle, but it's, it's so great to hear that, that you guys, as well as a lot of the nonprofits that I talk to are, are really focused on, on that piece of the equation. Um, so I, I know it's a, it's a challenging and, <clears throat> and sometimes hard discussions to have, but I, I'm really happy to hear that, that you're having those over there at, uh, at American Alpine Club. Have one of the things that's interesting with a, with a membership that large, have you, do, do you do much, um, you know, action-oriented stuff in terms of, of of mobilizing that membership to to take action on you know on on big 
you know, land issues or, or mm-hmm. climate change issues or some of the other things that are affecting the climbing community, um, from a, on a, like a governmental standpoint or level? Yeah, that's, that's a great question. And it's a conversation that we are in as we speak. Um, our, our policy and advocacy team was really built around, I would call it a, a, a silo within the organization, mm-hmm. um, with an idea that we would show up in DC or um, in local governments and try to advocate and, and you know, influence um, policy. Um, over the last few months, our um, policy committee, um, who's, you know, is, is led by a chair, uh, a board member who's chairing the committee, um, his name is Pete Ward. And um, our uh, program chief programs officer, Misha um, Charles, have started to re-envision this and ask, um, you know, how can we combine the work of the education department and the volunteers and the 80 chapters that we have across the country mm-hmm. into, into a, uh, in, I'm just going to go into a force, right, that can show up um, and activate the halos of climbers and friends that are around them as as AAC members, but then also show up in, you know, um, local governments or even in the federal government um, as, a, as a large group of people with voices to say, yeah, we, we want to actually um, affect the policies or, yeah, the, the policies that you, the government, is thinking about. Right. So, yeah, it's it, it's it's a, a large number out there. And, and you're absolutely right. We have not in the past um been very effective in mobilizing and activating. Um, our, our strategy moving forward um, is is about activating activating and mobilizing our base, mm-hmm. and it's and it's also about um, how we might move our base in um, the policy interests that we have as the AAC. But how might we mo- mobilize our base to um, amplify the work that the Access Fund might be doing or Outdoor Alliance might be doing or the Nature Conservancy might be doing because, you know, at the end of the day, our interests are all the same, right? It's it's all of us outdoor users Mm -hmm. who want to protect um, and preserve um, access to these places. And if we have this, you know, membership base of 25,000 plus the halo of people around them and we can show up to support the Access Fund, that's, that's, at the end of the day, better for all of us. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, for sure. It's, um, you know, there's, there's always a challenge when, um, I'll just use the word competing, um, Mm -hmm. for, for, uh, attention and, and, and memberships or donors, um, for, for, you know, nonprofits to kind of feel like they have to go against one another. But, um, there are so many great examples of, of even very uh, divergent um, nonprofits who have the same end goal in mind coming together and really being able to, to, um, to, you know, completely amplify and, and change the narrative on, on certain issues. I remember back in the day um, there, when there was going to be a bunch of oil and gas exploration around mm-hmm. rifle um, mm-hmm. that I think it was ducks unlimited and maybe the access fund came together um, you know, two relatively, you know, they don't have a whole lot of overlap <laughs> right. in terms of, right. of, of what, what they're doing or how, you know, what their, 
what they're trying to accomplish most days. But but in this case, they were both very aligned with the idea that we needed to to try to protect this land. And and my recollection of that was that they managed to get quite a big chunk of of land preserved in in some fashion, so that um, you know hunters and and people of that nature and and uh, people who like to just access the uh, you know the outdoors and backcountry could continue to enjoy that without having it be just threaded with, with a bunch of um, oil and gas stuff at the time. Yeah, I, I think you're exactly right. And if I remember, um, if I remember correctly, the Outdoor Industry Association put out a study about the um, economic impact of the outdoor industry. And I think the number was some somewhere just north of $800 million. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's huge, right? I think that's actually larger than the extraction industry. Um, but we never show up together because we're so fragmented. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, climbing doesn't show up together, but, um, you know, the human powered <laughs> space doesn't show up together. And, and certainly like, you know, the motorized does not show up with the, with the trail runners and trail runners don't even show up with the mountain bikers. Right. Yeah. Um, but at the end of the day, the, uh, our um, use case might be different, but, but we're all out there because we love the mountains um, mm-hmm. or the wild places in this country. And we have to, we have to learn to, to, to show up together um, as a, as a much larger force yeah. than, you know, these fragmented, um, fragmented use cases that, that don't have um, a whole lot of political power by ourselves. Right. Right. Yeah. How, how are you guys, how are you mobilizing that, that membership to, to kind of take action? Are there things that you've, done that have worked or things you've tried that didn't work that you that you thought were were going to be a home run yeah how, how are you getting those people out and and excited about about you know calling their representatives for example right we we have not done we have not done uh, a significant job in this or we haven't done significant work in mobilizing our our members yet um and that's part of our strategy moving forward to ask how do we how do we connect um, you know our membership um, our large base with our policy advocacy work? Um, you know we do have a couple of policy zines that go out. We mm-hmm. um, send emails and text messages to our members when something is happening, but it, it is not it has not so far been um, you know an organization wide effort and. If I was to be really transparent, it's it's also about how this organization, the American Alpine Club, um, over the last few decades, um, have have built um, the organization through silos, really. Mm-hmm. So you know, policy advocacy as its own silo, and membership as its own silo, and education as its own silo. And there's some mixing happening, um, obviously, because we're within the same organization. Right. But, but you know we have not um, directed the organization to, to mesh all these things together. Gotcha. Um, so, you know, our, our future vision includes the education department, um, hypothetically speaking, might have um, a, a, an instructional designer who helps to design, um, you know, um, design education components for um, a volunteer to go out and teach um, policy advocacy engagement to um, members of a climbing gym, for instance. Mm-hmm. Um, so then that hits both the policy, the education department, and the community de- department, right. rather than thinking of all of those things as separate separate entities doing their own thing. 
Yeah, it's interesting. It, you know, we talk about content maps a lot and mm-hmm. looking for opportunities for, uh, you know, to, to just kind of plan out um, an organization's outreach. Mm-hmm. And a lot of times, you know, it, it's good practice to segment your list. So, so obviously, if you have people who've come in under different in, into those different buckets that you spoke about earlier, mm-hmm. um, you know, you certainly want to provide them with the materials that, that make the most sense for them. But, but I would say that looking for overlap and opportunities mm-hmm. to, to make sure that you don't get completely pigeonholed into one of those buckets, which, right. which tends to happen. Um, and, and usually, you know, the first step is to just take a step back and really say, okay, in any given week, we, you know, we may have, you know, let's just say you, there are four opportunities to reach out and, and you have, mm-hmm. um, you know, one major bucket and maybe even, even if you have five kind of minor buckets that you wanted to, um, you know, to, to provide engagement with, um, just making sure that there's consistency, um, and maybe one post a week goes out to the, to the major bucket. And then the, the other three posts get kind of, um, rotated between those other five user mm-hmm. group types. Um, you know, just planning that out can, can really be, you know, the first step to, to making sure that you can start to pull people who normally would associate with only one, one or two of your initiatives into mm. to getting more informed about all of the initiatives that you have on the, on the table. Right. Right. And, and we are starting to recognize the, um, uh, I don't know how to say this, maybe the deficiencies of our current database to do this. Okay. Um, as we start to mesh all of the, the work together and we wanted to, to be able to follow and map, say, a, a single member um, or groups of members, we, we actually want to be able to see, um, you know, what their policy interests are and, and, and um, you know, also where they live and um, what education components that they're interested in and what events they might they that they might have shown up in, and mm-hmm. you know, if they're giving to the organization, what what component of the organization are they giving to, so that we can start to see um, these individuals and start segmenting the right communications to them, mm-hmm. um, but also that that we want to recognize that most members are interested interested in multiple um, multiple works of the works of the American Alpine Club, mm-hmm. and and so that they don't get bucketed into a, a, a pillar and not not be able to to move freely across the organization. Yeah, um, it's a it's a challenge keeping track of everybody's interactions and engagements. It's so it's amazing how much data can be collected and and how overwhelming it can be to to try and analyze it all. It is, it is and we're not quite sure how we're going to tackle this uh, challenge yet. Um, I think it's probably a 2022 or 2023 project. Um, to to bring all of our um, data together into one database, and then figure out how we're going to to be able to read read it in a way that, that right. makes sense to the organization, and also be able to pull reports for each of the departments in a way that makes sense for everyone. But um, you know, we're climbers; we like big challenges. This will be you know, <laughs> this will be our KT, I guess. That's true. It's amazing too how um, diverse the community is in terms of of expertise. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I've met. I've met climbers that that have just a really remarkable um, 
amount of, of expertise. So maybe just reaching out to the community and seeing, <laughs> seeing who might be interested to help would be a way to, to tackle the problem. Yeah, I, I think you're right. And maybe we try to, um, like, um, you know, try to get activation through um, touching their sense of adventure and doing something really hard, right? Like yeah. We need somebody to help climb our A or V13 with us. Our <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Who's up for the challenge? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So, I mean, you guys obviously have a, a, a really great partnership program in terms of all of the, all of the um, brands that have come on board and to support the membership by giving out mm -hmm. discounts. Mm -hmm. Do you, do you leverage those brands in any other capacity during the course of the year to help support events? Do they, um, do they support you financially as well? Or what, what's the, what are those relationships typically look like? Yeah, they, they do all of the above. So depending on the brand and what their interests are, um, Brands support our events are mostly our Kraken Classics, so climbing events across the country. Okay. Um, they often support, you know, initiatives or programs that we have by by cash donations. Okay. Um, they also come in and, and help us with our um, annual benefit dinner, um, and those could be cash donations, and that could be um, product donations as well. Okay. Um, and then, yeah, um, events, there's always products that are Kraken Classics that happen across the country. Um, they will also help us market um, ideas or um, actions um, because, you know, most brands have big, um, big followership as well. Yeah. Um, and, you know, as we've leaned into this conversation, we started earlier about leaning into difficult conversations. As we've gone, uh, leaned the organization into... Um, this project we're calling Climb United um, around equity and inclusion and um, I would say um, climbing route names out there today that are that are mm -hmm. objectively offensive. Um, several large brands were the first to step in and say, yeah, we're going to to, to give you, um, you know, several hundred thousand dollars each to 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 address this conversation. Um and in return, they don't want anything from that. Um, they just right. want to see a, a healthier, a more inclusive climbing space. Yeah, it's interesting. You know, the, obviously, there's a lot of history, and whenever there's a lot of history, <laughs> there's there's a lot of uh, challenges that they go along with that, or, or at least that tends to be the case. And right. I think you can look toward all sorts of of historical naming conventions. Um, you know, mm -hmm. not not just in the climbing community, um, right? And, and it's an interesting, it's an interesting challenge to, you know, to try to, to, to reverse or, or at least change the direction of the way that people think about those things. And, um, and so it's, a, you know, it's certainly a big, a big challenge. Um, and, and yeah, it's a, I, I'm, I'm fascinated to, to see how you guys are tackling that because, <laughs> Because yeah, there are there are certainly some some roots out there that have less than than uh, you know less than friendly names attached to them. Right. Yeah. So so the way that we've we've decided to 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 look at this challenge right now is you know we we help we 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 organize the publishers to come together um, first okay. and foremost and ask you know what what is actually publishable for you all like there's some 
things, names out there that are, um, you know, I, I mean, there's some racial slang out there. There's, there, there's route, there, there are some route names that is just simply hate speech. Mm-hmm. Um, and those publishers, many of those publishers um, have actually reached back out to First Ascensionists. Okay. Some of this work is, had started long before we got involved um, to ask if they might be interested in changing the n- names of their routes. And most first ascensionists say yes, um, because, you know, what we've learned is that the majority of the first ascensionist climbers, they're, they're not doing this out of malintent. Um, they felt that at that time that was it was just part of their creativity or, um, you know, there was an inside joke that they were talking about or right. whatever it might be. And... Um, as, as we've all grown and learned, um, and we've also started to be able to separate intent from impact, um, yeah, a lot of first ascensionists simply want, want want to change the names that they put out there. Right. Um, so that's been, for us, watching that has been a really, um, yeah, I feel a great sense of optimism from that. Um, the The... Publishers in, in the AC, we also together created, um, have started created, and it's also it's also going to be iterative, um, a list of, of words that they simply don't want to publish um, okay. and asking first ascensionists not to use them. And it's a pretty small list. It's a, I think it's maybe 60 to 70 words currently mm-hmm. um, that, that are just that publishers are just not going to use. And they've, um, they want to actively inform first ascensionists that, you know, racial slangs are, are not right. something that's publishable by them anymore. Um, we're also not saying AAC or the publishers are not saying, you know, you can or you cannot name your route, whatever you want. Um, what we're simply saying is that we, we can't, we can't put this into, into print because. Right. Um, yeah. And, and I, I think this is also goes back to this converse, uh, multiple conversations around um, free speech that I've had. Um, and I think sometimes we, we, we forget that free speech isn't just about the rights of the speaker, but it's also about the rights of the compelled listener. Um, and, you know, the Supreme Court has debated this multiple times, right, that, that, that you can't just say whatever you want um, because there's actually the, – the listeners actually have rights too. Right. Um, and, and, and you have to balance those rights. And I think sometimes we forget the rights of the listener and in, in, in terms of the climbing – I think we've um, sometimes focused just on the rights of the first ascensionists and not those hundreds of people who come after them to climb the route that they put up. Yeah, it's um, it's certainly an interesting dilemma, and, um, and I think it's it's a it's kind of kind of cool how you're how you're tackling it in terms of just going out out to the publishers and just saying, hey, you know, can we all agree that uh, that we just won't have roots with objectionable names published. And so mm-hmm. the, the desire to be noted as that, as, as the, the person who put up that, that route, um, theoretically would overweigh or, or outweigh the, uh, the desire to name it something offensive. Um, right. Yeah. You know, and so it's kind of a, it's a really cool, uh, really cool kind of way to, to go about it, I think. Yeah. Thank you. Um, and, and it's the, uh, it's the starting point um, because, um, you know, the, the climbing route names is, is, is on everyone's minds currently, or not everyone, a good number of climbers' minds. So we're using that as a pivot 
Mm -hmm. um, to start here and then pivot into a, a broader culture conversation because, you know, route names really are an expression of culture, right? And if we are a part of a culture who thinks, um, you know, I'm just going to use the word hate speech here. Um, hate speech is okay. Um, right. then, 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 then we haven't addressed the core problem, which is the culture and not the route, the expression of it. So, right. um, we'll get the route naming things. Um, you know, the first edition or the first draft of that settled out and into the public sometime this summer. Okay. Um, and then climb United, the program will then, um, pivot into working on, um, you know, helping to educate all of us, including myself, um, how we can be better climbers or better citizens in, in climbing. Right. Become more inclusive and, and to be less, um, yeah, to be less exclusive, I suppose. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. How, how are you addressing those routes where the first ascensionist is no longer with us? What, what happens with those? Yeah. So it, it's up to the publisher if it's being published. Um, and some of those routes, if it's if if a publisher decides it's it's just just not fit for print, they might just give it a number, okay, uh, and and refer to a number instead of the route name itself. Okay, um, I think there's a few publishers that are thinking about putting it in the back of the book, so that um, you know you might just get a number, but if you want to see the original route, you might be able to route name. You can go to the back of the book. Um, and some of these might also get an explanation or the, you know, the intent of, of a name. Okay. Um, so that it's not always just, yeah, the impact is important, but sometimes you want to share the intent and how a name got to be that way. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. It's just an interesting dilemma. I, 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 I don't, don't envy you having to <laughs> right. try and try and navigate that one. It's right. uh, certainly interesting. Right. I, I actually think that we're doing the, um, I want. I don't actually want to say the easy part, right? We just needed to get the momentum started, right? Um, and I think that the publishers and the first ascensionists and the climate community are is, is actually doing the hard work here, um, and the long lasting work, um, right? Yeah, and uh, just so grateful that uh, um, a large handful of publishers showed up and said, "Yeah, we want to actually do this." Yeah. Well, I mean, they have to they have to retool some of their their things. I, I imagine it's a little easier in the digital age to retypeset everything <laughs> um, <laughs> versus having to do that back, back the way that we used to have to do that in the, in the you know, pre-digital age. Um, oh, but, exactly. but it's still, you know, it's still a lot of work and, and there's, there's some historical um, stuff to navigate there. And uh, yeah, it's, it's interesting. I'm, I'm glad you guys are doing that work. It's cool. Yeah. Yeah. It's, 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 it's been really interesting for me as, as you know, my own education to watch, um, the online route aggregators, they can, they can change some of these things relatively easily, relatively mm -hmm. compared to the print publishers, right? Right. Who, who have guidebooks out there that have been in print forever. And, you know, we have 180,000 volumes downstairs with lots of things in there. And, yeah. you know, I, I recognize that we, the American Alpine Club, have contributed and been part of creating this culture. So, um, it's also been interesting for us to, 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 to learn to become more humble. Um, and to learn from our mistakes and say, yeah, we have some responsibility in trying to help um, change the, the trajectory here. Um, yeah, and, that's... you know, we're going to keep the 180,000 or 200,000 books that we have, and those names are going to exist um, yeah. in, in that library forever. And, and I think that's okay. Well, I think if we, you know, if we just erase history, then, then 
we don't have the opportunity to learn from it. So right. it's a, it's a delicate, uh, you know, balancing act, I think, but, um, right. but yeah, I mean, if, if we just wipe it out, then, then it probably has a little bit of an opportunity to, to resurface at some point. So, right. um, so I think that, uh, I think that, that having, having that historical reference might not be the worst thing. Um, you know, mm-hmm. certainly, Certainly, that's a bro- among a, a broader uh, discussion in terms of of uh, you know civil war statues and things of that nature that, right. that we could right. certainly get into. But uh, but uh, you know, I, I think that um, education is kind of the the first step, and, right. and if, if we're coming at it from that perspective, it's probably the the right way to to approach it. Right, uh, absolutely right. Um, and and for us and for me, you know, I, I keep reminding myself and our team that, you know, we're, we're not trying to judge, um, you know, the decisions of people from the past. Um, they did what was right within the context of, of the culture at that time. And as we learn, we just have to, to evolve our practices along with the evolving society. And that's, that's all that we're simply doing. Right. Yeah. yeah. So, so I want to pivot a little to just asking you a little bit more about how you, you engage. So you have, you have memberships, you have uh, donors, you obviously have, have uh, corporate partners and sponsorships. And then mm-hmm. I'm noticing on the site that you also have uh, volunteers. Can you tell mm-hmm. me a little bit about your volunteer program and what, what that looks like? Yeah, so, um, you know, our volunteer program really is, is built around communities. Um, there's about 80 sections and chapters around the uh, around the country. Um, so, you know, there's a new one that's forming around Yosemite, and those are um, groups of members who are coming together okay. um, and, and climbing and hanging out and doing things together. Um, and so if you, if, you, if you bring groups of people together, then you need somebody to organize those groups. Um, and, you know, the volunteers are mostly volunteering to organize those groups of um, members that want to, to, to build community in person, um, whether that's grabbing a beer together or, or going climbing. Um, part of the future vision, though, is those volunteers um, who are the most active volunteers. We would love to, um, you know, provide them the toolkit to, to activate their um, you know, climbers in their circle to, to, to show up for policy or advocacy events. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, volunteers also help us with, you know, trail cleaning events or trail maintenance okay. events. Um, volunteers also show up with our Kragen Classics. Um, yeah, so events um, and activities, volunteers okay. show up to, to help with those too. Okay, that's great. Yeah, I was just curious. I um, yeah, wasn't sure if you were, were doing... Um, yeah, like trail building and things of that nature, or or how people were um, were volunteering. Are are there people out there as part of of the AAC that are that are doing like you know re rebolting routes and things like like that? Um, I think there are probably members of the AAC out there rebolting routes. Um, we do not have a rebolting project. Um, okay, as the AAC. Um, I know that Access Fund does, and we we used to, um, I think, co-fund um, uh, their their building project. And okay. what we've what we've decided is that you know, we don't need to be in the um, 
front and center with that. We just simply actually want to just write checks to the access fund because right. they do it so well um, right. and, and just, just help support their work. Yeah, well, it sounds like you work really well with other nonprofits in finding organizations like Access Fund or, or Nature Conservancy or um, you know maybe even Volunteers for Outdoor Colorado and places like that that do trail trail building things. Mm-hmm. Um, it sounds like you work really well with with other nonprofits. How how have you gone about trying to nurture or, or build those relationships over the years? Yeah, I well, I'll, I'll be transparent. I, I don't think that we do it well yet. Um, okay. And and we are are working towards doing it better. Um, so so even this bolt, bolt bolting conversation, we um, Chris Winter um, over at the Access Fund and I and I had a conversation soon after I started, and that, and we had this conversation like, well, how can we do this better? And and from my perspective, I looked at the Access Fund and said, well, you all do this better, and we're just kind of hanging on. Um, so there's no need to, to try to truncate this. Let's, let's just amplify what you do. Right. Um, and that's just a, 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 an approach that I have, um, where, you know, if we can look around and say, there's an organization that's, that's doing the work and they can do it better than we can, then, you know, let's not start segmenting this. Um, let's, let's try to help support their work. Yeah, that's great that you have those resources and funds, and and obviously you can kind of mo- activate your um, your membership. Mm-hmm. Um, so that that seems really cool to to have that approach to it. Yeah, and I think it helps that we're um, you know we 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 uh, I suppose we 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 are in so many things that we don't have to have um, one thing that we do really well, right? Mm-hmm. Um, we're very broad. Um, and so when I think, you know, policy around access, um, access fund does it so well. So why, why are we trying to do access policy in a way that's not, um, which simply not as effective as the access fund? Let's, let's take whatever we were going to spend on that and, and, and give it to them to do it better. Yeah, that's great. Have, how does that work in terms of, money that's coming in for you guys mm-hmm. to yeah. to reroute uh-huh. how how does that how does that work with within um either your the way that you you message that or mm-hmm. or um you know manage it i guess right well a, a large portion of our um revenue comes from membership okay um so that membership revenue isn't isn't um, allocated to anything in particular, okay. um, or it's certainly not restricted to anything, right? It's 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 a membership dues, right? Um, and so we can look at that membership due and ask, well, how can we how can we how can we best use this um, cash um, to to further the mission of the organization or further the interest of the of the members? Um, and if you know conservation policy is what it is, then then we look around and say, well, how how can we do it ourselves, or is there someone else that might be able to do it better than we can? Okay. Um, funds that come from donors with specific um, restrictions or um, corporate funds, uh, those don't those don't typically get routed to anyone else. That that's really as as you you know implied is right. not really possible. Right. Yeah. Right. Oh, that's, that's cool. I mean, that, that really speaks to, 
some of the advantages of diversifying those revenue streams where where you have a little more flexibility to to point things in in the direction that that seems like it's going to be to the best benefit where mm-hmm. if you just have one you know a, mo- a lot of nonprofits just have kind of that one revenue right. stream which is donations and you know those tend to be fairly restrictive in how how they're used likewise grants are are tend to be um, pretty restrictive in terms right. of their usage um, right. so it's kind of cool that that um, or I really like that you that you have that that at least that one avenue that you can you can be really flexible mm-hmm. yeah it, it gives us a lot of uh, it helps to create lots of opportunities for us yeah for sure yeah yeah in terms of your of your memberships uh, mm-hmm. have you so one of, one of the things that that we look at are opportunities to get people used to spending um smaller amounts perhaps over a longer period of time and mm-hmm. that tends to increase the amount of revenue that you can bring in as well as creates some semblance of um you know, cash flow and predictability. Um, mm-hmm. Have you experimented at all with with monthly monthly memberships versus yeah. all at once? We have not. Um, there's a small segment of our members, um, and I'm talking very small, like less than 100, mm-hmm. who who have um, chosen to pay their um, annual membership over a 12 month period. Mm-hmm. Um, but for the most part, you know, the vast majority pay once a year um, when they renew um, in, in one sum. Um, it creates a challenge for us because um, up until March, our membership was attached to that rescue benefit right. um, and publications. So then how do you how do you decide when that rescue benefit kicks in? Is that the first installment uh, of 12? Right. Or right. is that the last one? So yeah, it, it just creates challenges that, that we, I don't know, honestly, we didn't try to overcome. Understood. Yeah, I could see how there might be a tendency for for some portion of that, uh, some portion of that membership to to try and come and go and and take a little bit of advantage of of the situation by by saying, oh, I'm going on a big trip. I'm going to kick my membership up up right. for for this trip and then and then drop it for two months and then turn it back on and and so I, I can see how that might be a challenge for you. Yeah, exactly, and and some of it might also be just not uh, because of intent, right? So if you're over twelve months, and you know, I'm just hypothetically, your credit card expires during that time, and you're out in like Himalayas or something, and right, and you missed your last month's payments. Like, are you still a, a member or not? Um, right. Yeah. And yeah. So. No, I yeah. can see how that how how that how you came to that decision. It does seem like it might be <laughs> yeah. a bigger a bigger. Uh, challenge then benefit so uh, i uh, i like that yeah um, I, at I least do, you're, you kind of walk through the, the options exactly i do like your thought though because you know it is i i and I, I actually do think that we need to figure out how we might do this more uh uh in a, in a way that that more members might be able to pay for a higher level of membership mm-hmm. um because, you know, if we're asking for $45 at the supporter level, um, you know, I can feel good about asking that all at once. But at the at the leader level, at the um, a higher rescue benefit level and discounts level, that's $250. And 
Right. You know, a lot of us may not be able to pay that all at once. And so how might we um, structure that, I, I think, is a really great question and one that we'll have to tackle. Yeah. I wonder if you couldn't include um, sort of a, a sponsorship mm-hmm. deal where if you, I mean, so if, if you have 25,000, 25,000, right, members? Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, that, you know, there's a certain percentage that could afford more than the advocate level uh, of, mm-hmm. at five, $500 a year, mm-hmm. um, who, if you framed it in an interesting way, or particularly tied it to, um, you know, not just the stereotypical kind of dirtbag climber guy, but, mm-hmm. but, but some, some kind of, of scholarship sponsorship sort of opportunity to, to bring more people into the, in the fold. And, and so, you know, someone who, who did have the means to, to do $600 could then sponsor, um, a, you know, someone who was just coming in at the 40, could sponsor a couple people just coming in at the $45 level up to, uh, the partner level perhaps. Oh, interesting. Um, and, and that way, um, you know, you, you, you probably drive, I, I don't know how your relationships work with, with the rescue coverage mm-hmm. or the medical expense coverage stuff, but I, w- I would imagine that there might be a way to, uh, to finagle, um, lower prices on those with, if you had a higher number of membership that mm-hmm. were taking advantage of those programs. Um, so, you know, there, there might be some way to, to kind of create those opportunities for people to even kick in, you know, five extra bucks or, or make it a monthly kind of donation that goes into this membership fund that helps, right. helps people, um, you know, who, who maybe apply for, for a scholarship for, for lack of a better word, right. um, to, to get bumped up. And then maybe you could tie, um, tie that to, you know, donating time, volunteering time to work on trails or, or, or do something with even the access fund or somebody like that. Um, right. and that way you could kind of fuel this entire ecosystem of, of, uh, of the community to, you know, give each other a lift and also help boost the, um, you know, just all the great things that, that we can do as a, as a, a, a big community like this. Right. I like this idea. Um, because many people who are at the, the, the advocate level have the capacity to give another extra, you know, hundred dollars or two hundred dollars or what, whatever amount that they might feel comfortable giving. Yeah. To help buy memberships for those who who may not be able to today afford it. Yeah. Um, and it, it goes a long ways, right? The membership, especially around the rescue coverage and the medical coverage, in terms of having some comfort. Being being outside outdoors, um, yeah, maybe in faraway places. We had, well, I just, um, yeah, yeah, it's just yeah. I, I, something maybe to to think about in terms of being able to increase increase your your membership levels, perhaps mm-hmm. even increase your memberships as well. If there was like a you know a um, opportunity for people to to apply for apply for you know scholarship, whatever mm-hmm. um, that. Yeah, I mean, there, I could see how I, how I could fuel a whole bunch of different activities there. Right. Yeah, and and, and kind of in the spirit of this of this conversation, um, we had four members come out uh, a few months ago and said they wanted to anonymously 
um, start a, a new grant with, that that we're calling calling the Catalyst Fund. Okay. Um, that is on, open only to BIPOC and LGBTQ yeah. individuals. Yeah. Um, um, and it's essentially, there's right now twenty two thousand dollars, I think, in that fund. Oh, and awesome. what we're asking is that, yeah, you, you just tell us what your climbing dream is and we'll see if we can help fund it. Um, we're not going to tell you what you have to climb or what your dream ought to be, right? Um, it doesn't right. need to be cutting edge. It could be, you know, gym to, to crack transition or it could be, right. you know, I want to learn how to belay or it could be, yeah, I want to go and, you know, go go climb links are like grab yeah. them and, and and we don't care. Like, just tell us what it is and we can figure out a way to help fund it will help fund it and yeah. and that will actually come with a membership as well okay cool um, yeah so yeah. kind of similar right there's a, a few folks who had some capacity that said yeah how can we how can we broaden the, the um the members and how can we broaden the um the faces of climbing and they simply decided that we'll just fund it and help make it happen oh, I, I think that's just a, amazing i'm glad to hear that that that's uh an option for people. Um, mm-hmm. and, and I, I certainly think that it's uh, a great, you know, public relations opportunity as mm-hmm. well as, as well as it just does a lot of good. Um, you know, the more diverse we can make our communities and the more overlap that we can have, the, the, the more good we can, we can do, I think. So yeah, absolutely. fantastic. Yeah. It's fantastic. Well, I, I have had just a really fun time talking with you and reconnecting with you mm-hmm. today, Mitsu. I um, I really appreciate you being on the show. How can people learn more about the American Alpine Club? Oh, I'd say, you know, come come to our website, AmericanAlpineClub.org. Um, you can learn about all the work that we do. You can sign up for um, emails from us um, and and or just feel free to give us a call. We, we still actually pick up phones here. Um, and we've got a, a, a membership coordinator who would love to just have conversations about the work that we're doing. Oh, that's great. I, I encourage everyone to go check out, uh, check out AmericanAlpineClub.org. And I loved, I loved our conversation today. I love having these conversations and would really like to see how these can actually foster some action. And so if there was anything that you would have our listeners do after listening to the show today, um, and it could be anything go be, go, go take a climbing lesson or do whatever they'd like, but what would that, what would that action be that you'd like people to take? Oh, wow. That's a, that's a really, that's a really interesting question. I mean, the, the, the action that I would like, love all of your listeners to take is to become a member, obviously. Um, but I, I don't know how, how wide your audience is. Um, I think, you know, my, at least from a climber AAC perspective and my perspective, I would love to see every climbing um, climber's pickup truck or car with a AAC bumper sticker on it, with an access fund bumper sticker on it, and their local climbing organization's bumper sticker on it. Um, yeah, so 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 get involved with the organizations that are around you, um, and get involved in you know whether it's trail maintenance or advocacy or community building like these things don't happen in a vacuum. Like we all have to activate. Well, I love that. And I encourage everyone to go out and, and look at those organizations. I'll share them in the show notes as well. And, um, I hope to our paths cross here out on the crag sometime in the not too distant future. 
Yeah, I hope so too. I would love to, to share a belay or a belay stamp somewhere with you. Yeah. Um, and yeah, so appreciate the opportunity to, to have this hour um, in conversation. Well, thank you so much again for being on the show. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Stu. Um, really sure. enjoyed this hour. Me too. Talk to you soon. Okay, talk to you soon. All right, there you have it. Another great episode of Relish This. Thanks for listening. If you would like to learn more about how to apply the audience engagement cycle to expand your organization's mission, there are two things you can do. Right now, you can go to missionuncomfortablebook.com to download a copy of my book. And while you're there, you can get your purpose-driven marketing score to see where you can unearth some gold for your organization. If you'd like to listen to back episodes of the show or sign up to be a guest, go to relishstudio.com slash podcast. That's it for this week. I'll be back next week for another great episode of Relish This.